everyone. Welcome to the podcast. Where can you get the best medical information anytime, anywhere? Right here on The Smartest Doctor in the Room. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell. This podcast strives to bring you the in-depth, most current information in all areas of medicine. Just a disclaimer, this podcast is for informational purposes only. It does not serve as personal medical advice. For that, please consult with your trusted healthcare professional. Today, we are going to be discussing cancer. Yes, that dreaded word that strikes fear in anyone's heart that hears those words applying to them or a family member. I also have to take a moment to dedicate this podcast to a dear friend of mine and my wife, Ricky, uh, Marla Golden. She passed away this weekend. I was at her funeral yesterday. Um, I'm mentioning this because Marla passed away from cancer. She had a two and a half year battle. She was an incredible person. Uh, the only way I can describe it, because I get chills just talking about this, she was the type of person that lit up a room. She's the type of person when something bad happened, she called, She, you know, you could feel her empathy. And when something good happened to you, she, you could tell she was genuinely happy for you. So really miss her dearly. My heart goes out to her husband, Bruce, and her three sons, Barry, Richie, and Corey. She was a remarkable woman, and uh, I know she stays with us forever. Okay. Specifically today, we're going to be talking about blood cancers with a top expert, Dr. Mikhail Sekaris. Now, if there was ever a time you wanted the smartest doctor in the room, this would be the moment, because the kind of work that he does deals with life and death every day. Dr. Sekaris wrote a really interesting article in the Wall Street Journal back in August saying, are you sure you have cancer, which I thought was an interesting title. Uh, and we're going to get into that a little bit. Dr. Sekaris is currently the chief of hematology at the University of Miami's Sylvester Comprehensive Cancer Center. And before that, he was a director of the leukemia program at the renowned Cleveland Clinic. He has written two books, one I just finished reading, When Blood Breaks Down, Life's Lessons, which was terrific. He's really a good writer. Um, and you can tell, you know, the, uh, he's very empathetic to his patients, which is not always the most typical thing on oncologists, nothing against oncologists, but you know, <laughs> they're not the most fuzzy wuzzy doctors in the, in the specialties. And he's also the author of drugs and the FDA safety, efficacy, and the public's trust, which I have not had a chance to read yet, but I'm sure is really good. So I'm super happy and pleased that he was able to make the time. Dr. Mikhail Sekaris to the podcast. Gee whiz, well, thanks so much for having me. It's really a privilege, and I'm so sorry to hear about uh, mm. your wife's and, and your friend passing from cancer. That's terrible. Yeah, it is. You know, as we all know, this these things affect you to the bone, and uh, yeah. Well, I want to ask you something that is interesting because you even mentioned in your book, and as I said, I really enjoy your writing. The way you know you're dealing with such a tough subject, but you know, a lot of times your your personal your personality comes through. And you mentioned, which I think is true, that a lot of medical students do not exactly gravitate to oncology. Unfortunately, a lot of them seem to graduate to dermatology because uh, it is a frightening area of medicine. Why did you choose this field of medicine? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, Dean. And, you know, it, I'm a true believer in uh, serendipity um, and emotion leading, leading to most of the major choices that we make in life. I think particularly when we go to medical school, you have a bunch of highly motivated people who've been very successful in school. So, you know, as a bone marrow doctor, I, I say that they're totipotent. They can evolve to be anything. Yeah, interesting. And the, the hardest 
um, decision that people have to make as a medical student or, or in training as a resident is actually closing doors and deciding that they don't want to be something. Mm. So for me, it was actually a very poignant story. I was in the uh, medical intensive care unit during my first rotation as an intern. And I had never been in an ICU for a full rotation as a medical student. So it was a pretty scary place. It is. And I did my residency at Mass General. And that was you know, probably the top referral hospital in New England. So we really got the sickest of the sick folks into our intensive care unit. And one night um, I was on call, I was an intern and I had a, a junior resident, a second year resident who was with me. And we were on completely alone for the night. And a woman was admitted to the intensive care unit who was in her forties and had a, a diagnosis of, of metastatic ovarian cancer. Um, and she was about to go on to a respirator and then she decided she didn't want to that she she said this is my time and i want to spend my last hours on earth breathing regular air and of course we we respected that decision and it was really an emotional emotional evening her husband brought by their two children to say goodbye to her they were eight and ten years old and then you know we all kind of had to leave the room to to you know, deal with our, our own tears when we saw that, that scenario unfolding. And then he, he, you know, took the kids away. And about an hour later, he and her best friend came into the intensive care unit holding CVS bags full of stuff. So I was walking by her room all night long, rounding on patients. And I saw either her husband or her best friend hold up a clipboard and she was writing something on that clipboard. So I went to my my junior resident, who was basically the source of truth for me. Um, that, that <laughs> it's so true. Time. I mean, it's amazing, right? You, you feel like you, Somebody you, two years older than you was like, I totally depend on you to make the right a, call here. He was like a god on earth. Right? <laughs> and I felt like I had to re-educate myself on even how to go to the bathroom with this guy. <laughs> I felt like I knew nothing. So I, I went, went up to him and, and said, um, you know, hey, Dave, what's going on in there? And he said, well, she, she's writing cards. And, and for some reason, in my mind, I thought of three by five cards, right? The, because that's what we kept notes about all of our patients. Right, that's right. That was the day we did that. Mm -hmm. And he said, no, no, not, not those cards, uh, other cards. And, and, I, and I realized she was writing out cards for her children for their birthdays. Oh, my God. Oh, I'm, now I'm going to cry. <laughs> for Valentine's Day, for graduation. Oh, my God. And in that last night, she was writing cards to them for the next 10 years, for the 10 years. Oh, my God. Wow. So it was this incredible scene. And then in the morning, almost, I mean, poetically, as the sun was rising over the Charles River, she, she passed. But I thought to myself after that, you know, I want to be in a profession where I have even a glancing relationship with people like that who face some of life's most incredible moments and decisions and do so with grace and dignity. And, and by doing that, teach the rest of us how to live. Hmm. So, That's it, so beautiful. Hmm. Maybe, a, maybe a longer answer than you were anticipating. No, it was amazing. <laughs> you know what? I was going to put a caveat to that. You know, I, I mean, it gives me chills because you're the kind of doctor, obviously, I think any patient would want. Was that, and it's funny because, you know, I, before we got into a lot of trouble, I, Lance Armstrong wrote an incredible book. It's not about the bike, you know, about his, his battle with testicular cancer, which was really incredible. I mean, the way they depicted it. But I'll never forget, he was through so much. And at the end, he said to his doctors, who he was so grateful for, I think it was at Indiana 
Indiana University. They were like really specialists at testicular cancer. And he said to one of the doctors who was really with him the whole way through, he goes, you know, I so appreciative that I had you. He goes, but why would you choose this profession? He goes, it's so hard. It's so difficult. And you know what the doctor said? He looked at Lance and he said, you know, Lance, this is my tour de France. He goes, I wanted to, I wanted to be in the field that was the most challenging that took me to the edge. You know, it's the same thing too. Like I can get on my bicycle and ride for five miles. It's not, you know, climbing the Pyrenees, you know? I mean, so it really takes somebody special. I think patients and the public need to understand that. I think, especially in the way the whole world is now in medicine, you know, how, um, and we, maybe we'll get into it later too, how doctors need care. Because again, I, I feel it myself too. I mean, I try to do a lot of things to make myself mentally and physically strong because I want to give it all to my 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 patients when I see them. But if I'm not feeling well or whatever, it's it's hard to, to give so much, but it, it's so desperately needed. All right, let's move on to the, the medical, medical stuff of cancers. And I'm curious to get you, you touch on this in the book, and it's kind of fascinating about blood cancers because they are different than other cancers. You know, other cancers, whether it's colon cancer, lung cancer, you know, it's typically people when they're older, they get this, and usually we think that there are lifestyle factors, but leukemia specifically too is, is kind of a mystery. You know, is it genetic? You know, uh, is it viral? You know, we have know of some viruses that maybe do it. Is it environmental? And you you touch on this. So, and, and I think also what's so baffling about you know blood cancers is that it can happen in infants or even pregnant women who you think have to be healthy to get pregnant. You know, so how can they get? A blood disorder. So maybe the best that you can in this complex question, you know, give us an idea, you know, how we should think about it, you know, because a lot of times, too, you know, sometimes also people do have the blame game. They say, oh, I was a smoker. That's why I got lung cancer. Or, you know, I you know, did this. That's why I got I, I drank a lot. That's why I got hepatitis and I have, you know, hepatocellular cancer. But leukemia just seemed to come out of nowhere. So yeah. what's your sort of being in this field, your overriding thinking? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. So it, it is a popular misconception that leukemia predominantly affects kids. Okay. So if you look at the average age of somebody who gets acute myeloid leukemia, the average age is 68 years old in this country. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's interesting. And so I'll, I'll actually, it's one of the uh, you know, teaching sessions I have with residents sometimes, I'll run them through this and say, you know, what's the average age of somebody getting acute leukemia? They're just starting on the rotation and they'll guess like, oh, it's 10 or maybe it's 20 years old. They don't mm. know. And, and it's actually 68. Mm. And, and I remind them that, you know, there's a little bit of politics to it. So if you're a cancer center trying to raise money, it's a it's a lot easier to raise money if you if you show some adorable child who's bald, as opposed to a 68-year-old guy who's bald. You know, it's funny you say that. I, I was part of it, Memorial Sloan's Kettering. There's was called the Laura Rosenberg Center for over two decades, where uh, Laura Rosenberg passed away, I think, about 25 years ago. And her, her mom was just an incredible crusader. And from her experience of seeing her daughter die there, um, raised money through fundraisers in the community for many years. And in fact, eventually established like a special kind of wing at Sloan Kettering, which they named after her, you know, essentially to help, especially like moving the kids who constantly have to go for procedures, like in the pediatric ICU and this, that too. And when they used to, at every year, the function, they would show like a half hour of what was going on in the center. And like, as you mentioned, seeing these young children bald, 
you know, carrying around IVs. I mean, who wouldn't empty out their pockets? Devastating. It, 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 it's devastating. So, and, and so, mo- so acute myeloid leukemia affects older adults. Acute lymphoblastic leukemia actually has a bimodal peak to it. So it peaks in kids under the age of 10, then it goes down again, then it peaks again as people get older. So you have older adults getting acute lymphoblastic leukemia and you have kids. So when these diagnoses happen in older adults, I always think about this as being basically a statistical argument. Cancer is a series of mutations. And as we live longer, we're basically statistically giving ourselves more time to accumulate these mutations and eventually evolve to cancer. Got it. Now that's mm. a different story for kids under the age of 10 who have acute leukemia. They're born with a mutation, so it's congenital. Well, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, no. It, it's, no it's, what I was going to ask was because you mentioned this in the book, and I it kind of threw me a little bit, but it's like, so you're saying they're born with this mutation, or is it possible from one of the, you know, viruses or something that they get early on in age, which would normally, let's just say, you know, a child would just get over somehow they may be predisposed and it hits one of their, you know, their sequences there and sets them up. So you're saying, no, they're born. It just hasn't manifested yet with it or. So it's a, it's a fabulous question. There, there is a type of leukemia, very, very rare, but more common down here in South Florida, uh, that's HTLV related lymphoma slash leukemia. And that can be associated with a virus. As far as we know, the other acute leukemias are not associated with viruses. And and the reason I say with a little bit of certainty that these kids are born with it is because there was a very, very clever um, experiment that was run years ago where the investigators, you know, identified these kids who were four, five, six years old with leukemia. And they asked the question, gee, were they born with this? Were they born with this mutation or is this something that just arose spontaneously? So they did something that was incredibly clever. They went back to the kids' Guthrie cards. Now, if you're old enough like me, you remember what a Guthrie card was. Um, Kids, when they're born, are tested for PKU. It's an enzymatic deficiency that can be corrected with diet. If you don't correct it, though, um, kids can have severe disabilities. So so babies are tested for it when they're born. They used to be tested by getting a heel prick. So needle was Mm. pricked into their heel, the heel was placed on the card, and then the card tested them for the PKU. Well, it turns out that in the United Kingdom, those cards are never thrown out. So the investigators went back to these kids' Guthrie cards, sequenced the blood on those Guthrie cards, and identified the mutation that was associated with their leukemia, even at birth. Oh, wow. So wow. amazing, right? That so mm. kids were born with the mutation that eventually led to their leukemia. They I didn't see. acquire it after they were born. Interesting. That, that's really fascinating. Okay, that kind of clears it up too. Because, you know, again, there's always like this blame game. And, you know, you know, as you know, too, between vaccines and, you know, contamination of the food, you know, everybody gets really crazy. And, you, and then you sometimes wonder too, is there a genetic predisposition? You know, like... Uh, you know, I mean, fortunately, I see this in, in adults, you know, it does seem like sometimes when someone comes from a family with both parents have a lot of cancers and all that autoimmune, it's unfortunately, it's like the bad, you know, roll of the dice for that, that person, you know, and, uh, and, you know, you just always wonder too, and I always even wonder with identical twins, like, for example, do they, is there an increased risk of leukemia, you know, uh, if one twin gets it versus another or... 
Yeah, no, another great question. There are some rare family syndromes that include leukemia, where leukemia runs in a family. Um, one of the more notorious ones is referred to as Lee-Fraumini syndrome, named after two epidemiologists who first described mm -hmm. it, where people are born with a mutation in TP53. TP53 is actually a tumor suppressor gene, meaning that if you have a mutation in it, your body doesn't suppress tumors mm. like it should. So people who have the TP53 mutation, Lee Fraumini, are more likely to get cancers like leukemia, mm. breast cancer, brain cancer, soft tissue cancers. It's also interestingly the reason why elephants- I was just about to ask you that. You reminded me, like, right, supposedly elephants don't get cancer, you know what I mean? Right. So that was research yeah. that was conducted at, um, at uh, the, in Utah, where investigators found that elephants actually have multiple copies of TP53. Oh, so wow. it's mutated, no big deal. They've got some backups. That's why they're unlikely to get cancer. Well, we have to get back to that later, see how we all increase our TP53. Um, <laughs> okay, I want to ask you about one of the things obviously that caught my eye in the Wall Street Journal article, which was taken, I guess, from your book, which is interesting. But I want to first even uh, discuss diagnosis versus misdiagnosis, which is obviously a huge thing in, in these type of cancers where the, you know, the clear-cut diagnosis may not always be clear-cut, it's so important. So I just want to touch on one thing for the, the average person. You know, how do these leukemias present? I mean, you know, it's like obviously, you know, someone who has, uh, got a big colon cancer could be having blood in their stool. That's how they would find it. You know, lung cancer, sometimes people are coughing up blood. Patients with leukemia, are they, can they typically be healthy? Is it usually they, they bruise or bleed easily or is there pain? How, how would you find the typical presentation that somebody should be suspicious? Yeah, it, it, it's a great question. I think there are a couple different ways it can happen. One is it can be essentially spontaneous. We don't screen for leukemia. We screen for things like breast cancer, colon right. cancer, mm -hmm. prostate cancer, because when we screen and we detect it, we can intervene at an early stage and prevent it from, from becoming deadly. With leukemia, with acute leukemias in particular, the time from onset of symptoms to the diagnosis is usually within four to six weeks. And the symptoms can be really insidious. Uh, people complain that they have the flu. Right, right. That's what I'm saying. I've heard that. You know, when I did all my rotations in internal medicine and I worked with the hemonc people, they were like, yeah, some people say they keep on feeling like they're getting recurrent flu they're not, or cold they're not getting better from. So something very, you know, nondescript. Right, exactly. So they go to a doctor, they say, I just don't feel well, I'm tired, I'm achy, yeah. feverish. The doctor says, oh, you probably have a virus. Maybe the doctor throws some antibiotics at them and sends them on their way. Mm -hmm. They come back two weeks later and say, I'm, I don't feel any better. In fact, I feel worse. And that's when the first blood test happens. Mm -hmm. And it's that blood test that shows usually wild lab abnormalities, a white blood cell count that could be sky high or in right. the very low platelets, very low hemoglobin, that will prompt a doctor to send a patient to the emergency room. Right. And mm -hmm. often it's it's in the emergency room that a patient is told to get their affairs in order and they're 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 sent to me. Wow. Hmm. Okay. So but, it's it's right, as you say, it's subtle, but there sometimes can be some more clear cut things that do it. Yeah. Um, the other way people get it is if they have a previous bone marrow disorder. So I specialize in something called myelodysplastic syndromes. Um, it's actually what um, the ABC um, 
Good Morning America host Robin Roberts had after she was treated for her breast cancer. She developed myelodysplastic syndromes and, and eventually underwent a bone marrow transplant to cure that. Mm-hmm. It's also what Nora Ephron had from mm-hmm. when Harry Met Sally. Right. You may recall, there's a big article about this in the New York Times at, at the time. She had myelodysplastic syndromes and uh, almost overnight it seemed like she was diagnosed with acute leukemia and, and, and died. Well, w- what really happened with her, she had myelodysplastic syndromes for years, but kept it a secret because actors, directors, when they're on a film, they're all insured. And she was worried she wouldn't be able to get insurance for the films she was working on if she disclosed that she had a bone marrow disorder. In reality, people who have myelodysplastic syndromes, most don't go on to have acute leukemia. Those who do, there's a prodrome to it. They may have myelodysplastic syndromes for months or years Mm -hmm. and then they get the acute leukemia. Okay, that's important to know. Let's go on to, as I said, the, the eye-catching part of the article, saying, are you sure you have cancer, which was kind of like stunning. Um, and it's mentioned in the uh, in this article, which I think probably is probably in your book, you know, which is pretty amazing that, like, for example, and you mentioned there was a study at Memorial Sloan Kettering where over 700 patients with lymphoma, which is more of a solid-based tumor, not leukemia, but when they were referred for a second opinion, 17% received a revision, a major revision of their diagnosis. So I guess what I want to ask you first off is if a patient gets diagnosed, possibly in their local community, you know, with a leukemia, maybe even lymphoma, is it really imperative to get a second diagnosis, especially because I'm sure the pathologists, you know, that mean all these things I know being in medicine, you know, it's not cut and dry. Everybody thinks, you know, a doctor's a doctor and, you know, Etc. But there is, you know, people that are just more specialized or see more, as you mentioned, like in Mass General, that they get a second opinion. And then I just want to add to that. I mean, I, I understand sometimes when patients are overwhelmed about going to an academic medical center. Maybe it's not close to where they live. And if they have to start getting treatment there, it becomes a burden to them and to family members that they're visiting. You know, so maybe my multi-part question is, should pretty much anyone who gets a diagnosis of this, even though I'm sure they're afraid and they want to get treated immediately, get a second opinion? And how important is where you are treated? You know, they, they will, you know, you can see a lot of commercials in New York. We have a lot of excellent hospitals all competing for everybody's sure. business, um, you know, saying this is where you want to get treated. So and you've obviously trained at some of the top places in the world. So I'm curious your opinion. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I think it depends on the diagnosis, the seriousness of it, and the type of cancer. Okay. Um, in the article that I wrote in the Wall Street Journal, I referenced both that Memorial Sloan Kettering study about the lymphomas that are re-diagnosed, and I referenced a study that we conducted through the National Institutes of Health, right. where we um, enrolled patients who had a suspected diagnosis of either leukemia or that other diagnosis I mentioned, myelodysplastic syndromes, their local pathologist, and this could be at any one of 140 sites around the country, their local pathologist reviewed the biopsy, the specimen from the bone marrow, mm-hmm. and made a diagnosis. Those bone marrow samples were then shipped to our expert pathologists and we asked them to make a diagnosis. And then we compared the two diagnoses. And what we found is that 20% of the time, there was a major discrepancy in the diagnosis where a local pathologist had said, you have cancer to a patient. 
And one of our expert pathologists said, this isn't cancer, this is a vitamin deficiency. Well, let me ask you or, this too. Yeah. I think this is important. Um, you know, in your field, which has really evolved obviously a lot too, I mean, back in the day, I know from my training, which is really rudimentary, obviously, in comparison to yours, that we were always looking at cell types. You know, does it look like B cells, T cells, you know, that type of thing. Now there's all this genetic analysis sure. of tumors. So is that where the misdiagnosis is coming, would you say? I mean, where where is the problem that, you know, if you could, if they said, Dr. Sakaris, we need you, you know, even some small island somewhere, you know, for our cases of cancer, we got to get our house in order. And obviously, maybe who knows today's technology, they could have the slides sent to you and you're in Miami, they can review them. But where, where do you see the biggest misdiagnosis? Is it, you know, I mean, I'm sure probably not between AML acute myelocytic leukemia and ALL, but maybe a variant within each one? Is that, is that what you're talking about? It's, so it's a, another great question. When, when I talk about major discrepancies, that right. means like it could be that the pathologist misinterpreted the percentage of cells that yeah. were abnormal and that can sway a diagnosis. It may be that they thought the cells were abnormal looking like leukemia, but in fact they weren't. They were abnormal looking because of a vitamin deficiency. Right. Well, yeah. So wow. That's that's a lucky that's a lucky person. <laughs> that's a, so, and and that was actually the article that I wrote. I started with a patient I actually saw here at the Sylvester Cancer Center, at University of Miami, who came to me because his doctors said you have leukemia, and they sent along the pathologist report that said you have leukemia. But let's say the B twelve that would give you a very high white count because I know you can give you anemia, but that would actually give you a, like a crazy high hundred thousand. White count or just not, or disrupted the bone marrow? Yeah, so more disrupted the bone marrow. Not all acute leukemia has a high white blood cell count. Sometimes it has a low white blood cell count. Right, right. So right. you see these lab abnormalities that could be consistent with acute leukemia. You have a pathologist mm -hmm. who's saying, yeah, these are leukemia cells. And this poor guy was told he had acute leukemia. But when he came to us, it didn't really fit right. It didn't mm -hmm. look like acute leukemia. Okay. So the first part of your question was, should you get a second opinion on your diagnosis? Absolutely. If you have something serious, if you have something rare, you owe it to yourself and to your family to get another opinion on that diagnosis, because about one out of five times the diagnosis is going to be wrong for multiple cancers. This has been studied over time. What and do you do? I'm sorry to interrupt. What do you do? Let's say we're here in New York and NYU, and you're familiar with a lot of these, you know, they make a diagnosis and it's a great place. And then you say, okay, I'm going to go to Columbia. That's where I trained. I said, okay, I want to get a second opinion. And they're differing. Do you go to a third person or do you like, who's your advocate to say, no, I, you know, this guy's right. This one's wrong. Or is that, or is there, is there ever really a, a major problem? Like where, so you have to get called in and say, what, what do we think is the, uh, yeah, sometimes. And, and you can drive yourself crazy about this sort of thing. Right. right. So I think the first question to ask is if it's a different diagnosis, is it going to change the treatment recommendation? Okay. And if the answer to that is no, then I would say, don't drive yourself crazy with it. Okay. Now, when we found all these discrepancies, we actually looked at the treatments patients received, and we found that 7% of the time, patients got the wrong treatment for mm. the diagnosis that was made by their local pathologist. Wow. So that's what I mean, right? Yeah. You know it to mm. yourself. If you're getting um, discrepant diagnoses, see if the treatment is any different. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes okay. it's a subtlety that differs and two people are just digging their heels in about it and it doesn't make yeah. any difference to a patient. Right, right. Hmm. Um, then in terms of getting treated for your cancer, I think once again, it depends on how rare that cancer is and the experience a cancer center has in treating it. 
And I'll give you an example. I uh, treated one patient who had a rare subtype of acute leukemia uh, when I was still in Cleveland. And uh, that patient insisted on going to her local cancer center to receive her treatment. So she went there and then she came back to see me and she said, you know, it was so funny. Everyone came into my room, including the pharmacist to say it's the very first time they've ever mixed up that drug. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't exactly want to um, be a pathfinder for yeah, the pharmacist at a cancer center for mixing up the chemo for the very first time, right? Yeah. I'd rather be at a place where they give it day in, day out. They're right. really used to what they're doing and they know what they're doing. Yeah, absolutely. But let's talk about treatment too. I, I think it's so important. You know, the public is mostly familiar with the major cancer treatments. They all sound very barbaric, but besides surgery, there's chemotherapy, radiation, you know, and now I want to touch on the biologic monoclonal antibodies. Now, it was interesting to me, I remember I read this in one of my sports things that believe, and you probably know this too, you know, that chemotherapy, I think one of the original chemotherapy patients was Babe Ruth. He got it for uh, esophageal cancer at Memorial. You, is that, did I stump you on that one? I, you stumped me on that one. Yeah, I, I think I've read that somewhere, you know, and unfortunately he died, but, uh, but, you know, still obviously chemotherapy is a mainstay of so many cancer treatments and I'm sure also with the leukemias. Um, I guess there's always this question and I know like patients that have lymphomas get radiation. Um, before we get into some of the newer treatments, what's, you know, one of the things that I find in medicine, even in, in my field, which is a lot less risky than yours, is that things don't change very much over a lot of years. I, I was kind of like a little bit of a renegade in my field in immunology and allergy. And I do what's called sublingual desensitization, you know, where we desensitize patients that are allergic to environmental allergens or to even dangerous foods through sublingual drops. But my colleagues for probably over 100 years gave shots, which worked to some degree, but there was dangers, like people could get anaphylactic reactions. And I found that changing the mindset of some of the practitioners was extremely challenging. So I was just curious because it still seems like chemotherapy is sort of like the, the main level. Is that because, you know, obviously it's got a proven track record uh, or people are afraid to take it away even by adding in the new therapies? I mean, just what, what's your sort of overall gestalt on these? Yeah, I know it's a big subject, you know, on, the, on oh, these it's therapies. Great. It's great. One of the greatest advances we've made in cancer identification and treatment over the past two decades is identifying the genetic basis for the cancer, the actual mutations that occur that lead to the cancer. Now, a, a lot of people, even my, you know, my dad was a newspaper reporter and very informed guy, knew how to ask questions. And at one point he said to me, why haven't we cured cancer yet, right? And it was at the same time a, ver a very deep and a very naive question because cancer isn't one diagnosis. Right, right. It's thousands that, right. of diagnosis, yeah. right? Yeah. Right. And there are a number of mutational events that occur that lead to even a rare diagnosis like leukemia. So in some cases, leukemia does have specific genetic mutations that we're now targeting with drugs. But if on average, it takes four mutations before you get the leukemia, if you're targeting mutation number four, you're still leaving behind three, two, and one. Uh, okay. Or if you're targeting mutation uh... two, Maybe you're just leaving behind mutation one, but maybe mutation two doesn't matter anymore because it's already evolved to mutation three and four. Oh, so, I mean, so, so you need that chemotherapy to kind of wipe the field yeah. clean a little bit. So even within a narrow diagnosis like acute myeloid leukemia, it's extremely heterogeneous. Sometimes you need dumb bombs like mm. chemotherapy 
and you combine them with the smart bombs that target genetic mutations, and then you have a winner through that combination. Yeah. So, like, so a perfect example. I want to ask you. I mean, we heard a lot about it, but it seems like it's ten years ago. It was like Gleevec. I mean, that was like super exciting. Here, it sounds like there was a drug for, I believe, CML uh, by it was Brian Drucker, I think his name was. Um, yeah. Yeah. Who, uh, who, you know, was at? Uh, it's really interesting. He, he was at Mass General, I think, like where you were. And I think he lost his funding. They were like, no, nobody's really interested in what you're doing. And he went out to Oregon and, uh, you know, hopefully he gets a Nobel Prize one day. But, um, you know, so somebody who's got like CML, like, are you saying that they, I mean, I kinda, I'm generalizing a little bit because you're saying there's all these subdivisions and mutations, but is it potential that someone could just have Gleevec and not have to have chemotherapy and radiation, you know, for that? Is that? Yeah, so, so you bring up actually one of the great the greatest success stories in cancer therapy ever, and one of the great exceptions to the development of cancer. Okay. So Gleevec or imatinib was approved by the FDA in 2001. And it is true that Brian Drucker um, had a lab at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and lost his funding and was basically asked to leave. So he set up shop <laughs> at Oregon Health Sciences University. The reason he was so focused on developing a drug for chronic myeloid leukemia is that it's a one-hit wonder. It's one of the few cancers where there truly is only one mutation that occurs, what's known as the Philadelphia chromosome, chromosome right? Mm -hmm. translocation of chromosomes 9 and 22, that leads to the cancer. So if you really can target that one, it's the undoing of the cancer. But it's a very deadly cancer, right? I mean, compared, we'll talk about it in a minute, but compared to CLL, it's much more dangerous. So chronic myeloid leukemia used to be that the average survival was between three and five years. But now, because of drugs like imatinib and its second generation and third generation drugs, mm -hmm. people diagnosed with CML have life expectancies that are now the same as people who never have a leukemia diagnosis at all. Wow, that's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable. It's that's really exciting. Wow. What about also something like something that I use in my field of immunology, uh, gamma globulin? I, I remember there were patients when I was like, you know, in, in my hospital training years ago. Uh, I don't hear about that too much as well, because obviously I don't see these kind of patients, but they, they were getting IV gamma globulin every month for CLL. And I thought, it, you know, I wasn't sure if it was just to sort of protect their immune system so they didn't get an infection and die? Or does it have any immune modulating or cancer modulating effects? Or, and do they still use it? I mean, I might be outdated. You're not completely outdated. People will still use immunoglobulins for patients who have immune deficiencies associated with, for example, chronic lymphocytic leukemia. Oh, okay. Okay, so, it, so it's used as adjunctive therapy, but not as primary chemotherapy. Okay. What about, I wanted to ask you again in your career, you know, um, you know, either a remarkable story if you want to share with us, or have you ever, ever seen also like a spontaneous remission? You know, I'm just, you know, sometimes I like to, I, it's one of my new questions for my, my, a lot of my guests now, you know, because, you know, all of us are always fascinated. I mean, not that you should bank on that, but, you know, I mean, I guess it, to me, it's almost like with Magic Johnson, you know, when he was diagnosed with HIV, when I've heard it back in the, what was in the 80s? I was like, oh my God, he's a goner, you know? And he was just so fortunate that David Ho, they had just started trying out that triple uh, antiviral cocktail. And, you know, and the other, you know, this is the other thing too, which, you know, again, following the literature, um, I might be getting this slightly wrong, but there were some patients that were HIV infected, even back in the eighties, who were missing the, uh, I think it's called the CCR receptor. It's a certain uh, CCR5 receptor. I don't know if you're familiar with that. It's like, it's, you know, it's part of our immune system, but if you are missing that 
uh, receptor, the HIV can't enter the cells. So, because it was a mystery to some of these, they were following these patients for like 20 years. They're like, they're not getting AIDS, even though they're infected. So is there anything that you've ever seen any really bizarre case that stands out in your mind? Boy, great question. Um, you know, the only acute leukemia that spontaneously remits is one that's found in um, kids with Down syndrome. Oh, wow. So there is a higher predilection for getting acute leukemia in kids with Down syndrome, and it kind of makes sense. They're born with, they're, they're born with a chromosomal abnormality, right? Chromosome 21. Right. So their DNA has already demonstrated that it can be fragile and more susceptible to getting mutations. Um, and they do, in fact, get this rare subtype of acute leukemia, um, and they get it when they're about 18 months old, and then a lot of them, by the time they're like 24 months old, it's gone on its oh, own. Wow. Wow. It's, it's, it's and nobody understands it. Nobody understands what happens, like what range is there or... No, there are theories, no, but but not mm. really. But that's the only time I've really seen cancer spontaneously remit. There are stories of it in people who have melanoma, um, and that can be a really quirky cancer where mm. um, it can spontaneously remit, or there are also stories where you can partially treat it, and removing one clone of the cancer allows the other clones to explode, and it gets mm. much, much worse all of a sudden. Well, one of the things I want to ask you too, because you mentioned in your book, and I remember hearing about which was retinoic acid or vitamin A derivative. Is that that does that have a place in the armamentarium for leukemias? Yeah, it's a it, it's a really fascinating story. So a subtype of acute leukemia called acute promyelocytic leukemia is one of our most curable flavors of leukemia, um, and it involves a very specific genetic mutation. It's a translocation of chromosomes fifteen and seventeen. And what it does is it creates a block in the white blood cells in the bone marrow maturing. Mm. So if you can remove that block, you've partially treated the leukemia. So it turns out that we now use a combination of drugs that's entirely not chemotherapy to successfully treat and cure acute promyelocytic leukemia with cure rates that can be over 80%. No oh, wow. And the two drugs that we use are a vitamin A derivative called all trans retinoic acid and then arsenic trioxide. Oh, that was the other thing, right? You know, I mean, it reminds me of my literary background with arsenic and lakes. We're giving somebody arsenic and we don't, we, we make sure we don't poison them, but we actually cure their leukemia. Is that, uh, that's a story? Crazy. It's crazy, right? <laughs> and there's this, um, you know, story about how it was actually discovered in China and extracted right. from this root. And people thought, and there was really this bias against the Chinese. They thought it was crazy science and no one believed them. And finally it took somebody from the US going to China and getting treated and bringing back a sample of this root that was then had its chemical components extracted. And it turns out the active ingredient was arsenic trioxide, which wow. also works to remove this block in differentiation. So it allows the bone marrow cells to mature normally again. So we treat patients with vitamin A derivative arsenic trioxide for a certain period of time and lo and behold over 80 percent of them are cured that's amazing let me ask you one last thing on treatment and then we'll go on to one last section um i've done two podcasts on crispr and it seems like pretty exciting in a lot of areas do you think there will be a, a pretty good application of this in cancers i mean if you're able to sort of get in and excise whatever the abnormal gene is etc or and is anybody is there is it anywhere near in the works yet like any kind of that you're aware of, like, you know, drugs that are going to, you know, be sort of based on CRISPR for uh, leukemias? 
Yeah, we, we, we do see it in some hematologic conditions like sickle cell disease. Sickle cell, right. right? Mm -hmm. Um, that, that's a, that, that's a biggie. I think that's where it's potentially really exciting. Although there is a lot of debate about the costs of it, uh, for, for all these kids with sickle cell. Um, I think one of the challenges of doing it in cancer, you certainly could, you certainly could imagine that somebody has a mutation, you pull the cell out, you fix the mutation, you put it back in and they have normal cells again, except that cancer has multiple mutations. So I think if you were to do that, you might fix part of the problem for part of, even part of the cancer in somebody's body, but not the rest of it. And cancer grows so quickly, it acquires additional mutations very quickly also. Okay, so that's one more thing on, on treatment. You know, because we hear, and I, I knew a, a, a friend of mine in the community who had a bone marrow transplant. So what is the thinking with that? Someone has leukemia, they end up getting chemotherapy to essentially clear the cancer, wipe out their own immune system. And then by getting a donor, that hopefully has a healthy that literally takes over the production of the uh, of their immunity, and do they have to yeah. be on like lifelong drugs to to uh, you know like in other cancer you know other like transplants essentially? I mean, because essentially it's a transplant really uh, yeah. that where people you know have to be on, on immune suppressing drugs. Do they have is that or once it takes it takes? Great, great questions. It's it's absolutely fascinating. So it used to be thought that if we can give enough chemotherapy, we can completely wipe out the bone marrow, right? And the bone marrow will never recover again unless we rescue it with somebody else's bone marrow. So they would then get an infusion of the bone marrow, which sets up shop and takes over the production of blood cells, right? right. Makes a lot of sense. What investigators recognized is that probably more important than that was transplanting someone else's immune system to attack the residual leukemia in the bone marrow. So somebody who's in a remission means we, we can't detect the leukemia as hard as we look, but it doesn't mean it's gone, right? It's still probably there at a microscopic level for most patients. Mm. So what you're doing is mopping up that residual leukemia with somebody else's immune system. And a marker of somebody who's less likely to have leukemia come back is that they develop graft-versus-host disease. In other words, they're demonstrating that the transplanted bone marrow, the transplanted immune system is attacking the person's organs, the skin, for example, it, it's also probably attacking any residual leukemia. But it's so dangerous though, isn't it graft versus host? It can or be. So the art that transplanters practice is balancing, they give some immunosuppression, they give just enough to keep things like graft versus host disease under control, but allow a little bit of it so that you also have the graft versus leukemia effect. And people remain on immunosuppressive drugs for a long time after they get a transplant, there are some patients who eventually come off of the immunosuppressive drugs. Oh, really? Cured of their leukemia. Oh, wow. All right. The last section I want to talk about with you, and you talk about it so poignantly in your book, um, is really the family decision-making. Like you mentioned a case, I've got the name of the patient, but it was an elderly man. And, you know, you went to him about the odds of his success and I think it was 50-50, which is not the worst odds, but, you know. And he initially said he preferred to die at home with his dignity, like any person, doesn't want to die in a hospital. But his family then started to pressure him, which I understand, too. You have, you know, families who love someone, and they're like, no, Dad, you got to fight this out, you know, to the bitter end. And then you get caught in the middle as the doctor, you know, because I'm sure people turn to you, Doc, what are you saying? Or convince him. How, you know, I mean, you do this on a regular basis. How do you, you know, have the emotional bandwidth and what do you do? Well, what's your, uh, 
you know, what's your approach these days to uh, when a, if a patient says, I don't want to do this. This is like, you know, this is the battle I don't want to fight. Yeah, um, I actually find family dynamics fascinating, right? And in what other profession are we invited as reluctant visitors into somebody's life during these periods where we witness these sort of family dynamics? You know, when I, I have been in situations like that before, and it's the, the, these are all real stories that I write about in, in um, When Blood Breaks Down, um, what I try to do first is hear everyone and hear what their perspectives are. And a lot of times people view that our clinics, our doctor's offices as safe spaces to talk about things where they're not comfortable talking about it at home with each other. So I'll invite that. I'll invite the, my patient to talk about what his or her goals are. Um, I'll invite the, the family to react to that. So it's all out in the open. And then I'll try to get to why, if, if they differ, why they're differing. And, and sometimes it's really interesting. Uh, sometimes I'll ask a, a patient who says, I don't want any more therapy. Why is that? And they'll say, well, I had an aunt with lung cancer and she had a miserable death and I don't want that. Right. Mm. So that's an opportunity to explore that a little bit and to say, mm -hmm. well, you know, we're talking about different types of chemotherapy with different side effects. And, you know, you can always stop anytime you want. And that's mm -hmm. kind of eye-opening to a lot of people. They yeah, feel, right. That's right. Right. They figure once you're down that road, you know, you know, they don't, you don't get to get off the train. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, and we get to talk about advances we've had in nausea medicines and mm -hmm. other supportive care issues. Sometimes I'll, we'll, I'll talk to the kids and try to get to the bottom of, of why they want their parent to keep fighting. But, but when they've heard their parents' perspective, it's so fascinating. A lot of times they've never talked about it together, right? And, and the kids will often say, okay, I get it now. Like, I get what you want. Or, or a child will say, I really want you around for the birth of your grandchild or for your grandchild's right. you gotta, you, you, you graduation. To, you, you, yeah, you kind of pull the strings on the um, the emotional thing. But, Absolutely. Well, that's, that brings up one other thing, too. You know, it's interesting. You know, when I mentioned about um, this friend of mine, Marla, who's diagnosed two and a half years ago, unfortunately, with a very late stage cancer. Remarkable person. But you know what? Oh, God. She, she made it to both of her son's weddings, you know? And I think that's what also was like, you know, she was such a driven person. I mean, she looked beautiful. She, you know, and uh, she had one more son, unfortunately, who she had to try to hopefully see. But, you know, I, I think that, do you feel that plays a role in people's, you know, drive to live and... Oh my God, yes. There, there's, um, I, I write about this in the book and I actually wrote a, wrote a piece about this in the New York Times a few years ago about a patient I took care of who had, you know, I, I, it, it's the, the old joke, right? If he didn't have bad luck, he wouldn't have any luck at all. He had three cancers at the same time. Oh, God. And the two most serious of those cancers were acute leukemia and lung cancer. And he had raised his granddaughter. Um, his, his daughter, the, the child's mother, um, was, you know, had a drug use problem and was, was really out of the picture. So he said to me, I literally said, I, my goal, and I'll ask my patients, what's your goal? What are you living for? And he said, I want to walk her down the aisle at her wedding. Mm. Her wedding is five months from now. I want to walk her down the aisle. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we got him through some leukemia therapy and then the lung cancer spread to his brain. So then we got him through some lung cancer treatment, right? And then we went back to the leukemia treatment and we got him, but we got him to a stable enough place so that he could attend his daughter's wedding. And afterwards mm -hmm. he brought me the photo and it's this photo that you've seen a hundred times in your life, right? It's the father of the bride or the grandfather of the bride. He's walking arm in arm with her down the aisle. 
and he's looking over at his buddies to the side, right? And he's giving them this look that says, yep, I'm here. Here yeah. it is. Yeah. I'm with her, right? Yes. Not only I made it, but I'm in the same position all of you guys have been in of trying not to cry in front of all of you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, that's beautiful. And he actually bought a sweatshirt that said, I made it. Mm, I like that. Yeah. He wore that to clinic and he died within a month of that afterwards. Like he achieved Mm. his goal. Yeah. The human spirit is amazing. It's incredible. It really is. All right. So the last thing, as we finish up this amazing uh, discussion, uh, are there any final thoughts you have for listeners? If they have a friend, a loved one that's diagnosed with cancer or blood cancer, how to a little bit navigate the medical arena? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a great question. Well, first of all, um, you know, get the diagnosis. And then if it isn't with somebody who's an expert in that field, go to somebody who's an expert in the field. You owe it to yourself. You owe it to your family to get that second opinion. I think it's so important. And then if it's a friend or family member, go to those appointments and be an advocate and be a second set of ears. It's so important. Yeah. Right. To ask those questions that somebody in the stress of the moment may not think to ask. That's a great, yeah, that's a great point. Yes. Having an advocate, a friend, a family, if you have that, not only is it great to have that extra eyes and ears, you know, uh, one of my, my idols in holistic medicine, Bernie Siegel used to say, you know, like people that have somebody that can take them to an appointment, whatever too, they just live longer because they, they know somebody cares about them. So Dr. Sekras, I really appreciate your time. I know it's so valuable. Your book, When Blood Breaks Down, you know, it's, it's a tough book, you know, to read, but it's so poignant. Your writing is so good. Uh, unfortunately, anyone that has to deal with a family member with cancer, I think it's worth reading. Um, thank you so much for, for taking the time. Thank you so much for inviting me. It was such a delight talking to you.